Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, paperback, paperback, paperback writer. Very good. That's exactly what I was after. I'm worried that Paul McCartney's going to come after me for royalties. It wasn't that good. Um, Yes, so the paperback of my book is out. Just out. I'm just looking at the cover of the paperback edition in front of me and I'm judging the book by its cover and it looks great, Ed. It's foxy, isn't it? It looks to me a bit like some kind of um, hipster version of public information leaflets from the 80s. What an extraordinary compliment. It looks fantastic. Got a lovely quote from uh, Rutger Bregman on the front who says, should be the rallying cry of progressives around the world. Of course, we have a bunch of episodes from last year if people want to look back where we talked about some of the ideas in the book. But for maybe any new listeners who uh, weren't subscribers to the podcast when the book came out as a hardback last year, do you want to give us the elevator pitch? It's basically about big ideas that can make our world better. That's what it tries to do. And it goes into a whole range of ideas from how we tackle the climate crisis to housing to universal basic income to renewing our democracy, looks at what's happening around the world, national childcare, father's leave. So there's just lots and lots of ideas that it explores. And it's trying to say to people, there are ideas uh, to fix our world. We can learn from other people, other countries, many of whom are, are doing some of these things. And you can be part of it because part of the argument of the book is about the inspiring people who make change possible. And that, and the, and the last part of the book, as you know, is is trying to say to people that you can be part of the change. And I, I don't mean to embarrass you here, but one thing I really enjoyed about it is we get to explore these ideas, but we sort of see them through your eyes and we get a bit of a glimpse into various periods of your life, both as leader of the opposition, um, climate secretary. I think people will enjoy the bits of personal colour you bring to it, as well as the ideas. Have I embarrassed you now? No, I'm rather complimented, thank you. Well, there you go. Yeah. Paperback. It's exciting. Now, usually there's a bunch of old waffle from you and me at this, this stage that's unrelated to the subject matter of the episode. But I I thought this week we could do a bunch of old waffle that is related to the subject matter of the episode. Definitely. Because we're talking about cinemas. Yes. We'll get into um, exactly what the episode's about in a a couple of minutes. But I wanted to talk about your life as a cinema goer. Now, growing up in London, I wonder if it was different to to what it was like for me growing up in Macclesfield. Do do you have a cinema that you think of as, as your picture house? Probably the Odeon Camden Town, I think. Do you remember the first time you ever went to the cinema? You know, I don't really. Do you? No, I've I've got a very vivid memory of seeing Star Wars at the Odeon in Manchester. That's so funny you should say that because I was thinking Star Wars too. I was thinking Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right, yes. I used to always be going to the Macclesfield Majestic. The things I remember about it, number one, it had a fluorescent green clock next to the screen sponsored by the local branch of H. Samuel, which was just completely distracting. You were always aware of what time it was and it was fluorescent green. And then secondly, it was one of those old-fashioned cinema managers who would walk around in a tuxedo aggressively shushing people. That's so funny. So there was there was a professional shusha. Were you a very very re- frequent cinema goer? I think in as much as everyone was back then, because if you wanted to see yeah. something, you'd have to wait a year or two. Years yeah, before yeah, it came yeah. That is telly. true. That is true. Asked you to give me three favourite films. I sent you a text this morning. Did you do your homework? I did. Sort of did my homework. I was thinking of sort of cinematic experiences, and I thought Star Wars. That was the first sort of on my list. E.T. I remember going to see E.T. in the cinema with my parents and I remember that I really loved that. Yes. I keep pushing E.T. to my children and they 
don't buy it. You need to force them into a cinema to see it. A film that I never saw in the cinema, but was my dad's favourite film, was 12 Angry Men. Yeah, you've mentioned that before. It's a great film. The Henry Fonda film. What about you? I think if I go for cinematic experiences, I'm, I'm with you on Star Wars. Just seeing that as a really young kid and having my it felt like my brain exploded. When, when I was a teenager, I don't know at what point, but I got it into my head that I wanted to be the sort of teenager who watched art house films. Well, I didn't even know what an art house film was unless the maybe the Red Triangle ones on Channel 4. So I, I started going to the Corner House Cinema in Manchester, which was like this great artistic hub. And I think I probably thought I was some kind of beatnik and, and seeing films that they'd show, you know, all the ones that were on um, students' bedroom walls like Betty Blue and My Life oh, is a wow. Dog and Cinema Paradiso and that kind of stuff. And then maybe the other one is, I, I talked about on the podcast, last year I accidentally went to the premiere of the Beatles' Get Back without realising it was the premiere and getting to watch the rooftop concert in a, a movie theatre with Paul McCartney sitting there watching it with an audience for the yeah. first time ever. That was that was a real thing. So I, th- I think maybe those would be my cinema experiences. Yeah, that is interesting. Can I ask you some um, quickfire cinema questions? Yeah. How long before the film do you arrive? Well, I quite like the programme, but I'm not massively fussed about it. But you don't want to be arriving as the film's starting? No. I quite like the trailers. What's your preferred seating position? Probably middle. Middle, middle? Front middle, probably. What about budging past people to go to the toilet? Sort of embarrassing, but sometimes necessary. See, I, I, I prioritise an aisle seat for that exact reason. The other week we had to brush past people once to go to the toilet. Then it was cold, so I had to brush past them again to try and get them to the people to turn down the air conditioning which was blowing on the seats Justine and I were in. That strikes me as um, a bold thing to do. Justine was like really cold and I was quite cold too. You're so assertive, the two of you. This this is why you've got on in life, the pair of you. Well, I'm generally not, but I just was cold. Maltesers or popcorn? Neither. Get my kids to buy it and then eat theirs. What are your feelings on talking in the cinema? No. If you can't quite figure out if you've seen that person before on the screen, you're not whispering to Justine, who's that? Yes, I am, kind of. See, I can imagine you doing that. (laughs) But just at a sort of low volume and not frequently. Expressed as a percentage, how likely are you to doze during a film? 36. That was quite accurate. That was quite accurate. You really gave that some careful consideration. Complete the following. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. I'll give you half a point for that. I feel that you didn't really commit. Yeah. Do you stay to the uh, end of the credits or not? Oh, that's interesting. I was thought you might ask me that one. Only with specific purpose in mind. What would that purpose be? Either if it's been a particularly emotional roller coaster, or if I want to see where it was filmed on location, or who was that actor. Or if you want to find out if any animals were harmed in the making of that film. Generally, not really. Do you ever clap the credits? Yeah. And under what special circumstances is it acceptable to look at your phone in a cinema? Gordon Brown's calling. <laughs> I mean, the, the, uh, the correct answer, I feel, is none is never OK, but maybe there should be a Gordon Brown caveat. Uh, OK, OK, OK. Well, shall I, uh, shall I explain why there's been this uh, barrage of cinema-themed content? Yeah. It's because this week, we, we, we're off to the pictures. We're talking about cinema. Now, as you'll know, cinemas were amongst the worst hit cultural venues during the pandemic, uh, data showing that we went to the cinema 135 million times fewer in 2020 than we did in 2019. Fortunately, most cinemas have now reopened and the likes of Bond and Batman have brought audiences flooding back. And we thought it'd be a good time to celebrate these institutions and the role they play in our communities. And to do so, we're joined by Phil Clapp, Chief Executive of the UK Cinemas Association, Kevin Markwick, who saved and now runs the oldest cinema in the country. And you're very excited about this, aren't you? Definitely. A star of, I mean, not only screen, but stage, small screen. It's Fiona Shaw, who many people will know as Carolyn from Killing Eve. One, two, three, four. So, Jeff, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is something that you might find in a cinema. It's Round Trees Fruit Pastels, which I noticed this week are now fully vegan. Wow. These have been out of bounds for me for, for decades, and I finally get to enjoy a fruit pastel again. 
That's a big cultural change. And I was also thinking, do you think it's strange that when you think of British confectionery, you think of round trees and Cadbury's, and they were both these kind of social figures in their time? Yes, that is interesting, isn't it? I think they were both Quakers. That is interesting. I know nothing about uh, Bertie Bassett's social values. I'll try and research them in time for next week. What's your reason to be cheerful? Justine and I both started watching This Is Going To Hurt, which is the Adam Kay dramatised... It's it's the adaptation of his book, yeah. Yeah, which I rather enjoy. I've heard nothing but good things about it. About the stresses of a life of, a jun- of junior doctors and all that. And, it, you know, we're always on the lookout for good a good series to watch. I would recommend it. It's good. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by talking to Chief Executive of the UK Cinemas Association, which represents cinemas and their operators, Phil Clapp. Hello. Hi there, how are you? You okay? I'm well. I mean, I'm so pleased to have you here because before we get started, I've got three very quick ideas for you. One is all cinemas should employ shushers so that audience members don't have to do it. There you go. Uh, 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 One is that the audio from the film you're watching should be pumped into the nearest toilet. And the other one is... What about serving soup? Because it is a, a quiet thing for people to eat, <laughs> largely. It depends how it depends how you consume your soup. I think there are slurpers. Yeah, Phil had already thought of the soup question. You see, he was well prepared. We've gone through all sorts of foodstuffs. We'll we'll get into curry later on, don't we? <laughs> Which of those ideas do you think has the most legs? Shushers, probably, to be perfectly honest. I mean, you'll be unsurprised to know that most complaints received by cinemas are about other cinema goers. Uh, everyone loves the communal experience of cinema unless they have to share it with other people. Tell us a bit, uh, Phil, about what the UKCA, the UK Cinemas Association, does. I describe us as a kind of classic trade body. In ordinary times, if there's such a thing exists anymore, we kind of lobby government on behalf of cinema operators. General business issues, national minimum wage, health and safety, disability and access. We pretend to be part of the film industry. But actually, most of our concerns are general kind of leisure and hospitality concerns. But we also do some, you know, like this. We also do some public advocacy work, reminding people about the value of cinema and cinema going and, and the, the unique experience that, that cinema offers and the value that cinema offers to the high street and to a range of other aspects of life. And obviously, cinema's been through uh, the last two years and, and have faced massive, massive difficulties just talk to us a little bit about the experience of the last two years and where you are now, at the, not exactly at the other side of it, but, but coming through it. Sure. I mean, it, it, would be, it would be difficult to overstate the challenges that cinemas, like so many other sectors, faced over the last two years. Cinemas are a customer business, and when customers either decide not to or more regularly over the last two years are not allowed to attend cinema, then, then all revenue stops, essentially. But I think, you know, throughout the period of closure and throughout the period when cinemas were operating under capacity restriction and other restrictions, there was a confidence in the sector that we would get back to the kind of success we were seeing before COVID. You know, 2018 and 2019 were the two biggest years for UK cinema going in 50 years. We were on something of a kind of surf, surf of a wave, as it were, at the time. And if sitting where I am now, you'd said to me that, by the time we got to this point, we would have had two films which are in the top five ever at the UK box office in the last six months, which were No Time to Die and, and Spider-Man No Way Home. I think I and the people I represent would have bitten your hand off, to be honest. And that's interesting that 2018 and 19 were record years. Um, because one of my other questions was going to be about the impact of streaming and all that. Um, but actually, your sounds like it, it, the success of both is not inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, in some aspects of the media like to set us up as being in some kind of battle to the death. And that's not the way that the vast majority of cinema operators see it. We offer something which is materially different from streaming. We offer an out-of-home experience. And actually, many of the people we represent would see restaurants and bars and bowling and outdoor sports as more of a competitor than streaming. But the fact also is that the people who are the biggest consumers of streaming are also the the most avid cinema goers. They love film and and some films they decide to watch at home and some films they decide to watch, whether because it's an effects-driven film or it's an event film, watch on, on the big screen. There are inevitably some people who only go to the cinema and some people who only do streaming, but that kind of middle ground is a, is a much more fertile one. And, and certainly, I think the last thing that people would say after 
uh, a prolonged period of only being able to watch films at home is let's stay in and watch a movie. And is that true across the generations? Is that as true of younger people as older people? Or is it people who are like my age and Jeff's age that tend to go to the cinema? It's more true of younger people and families. We still have a piece of work to do in terms of getting older audiences back. Generally, younger people go to the cinema as much as older people, yeah? There's been a shift, and it's partly about demographics, it's partly about economics, but certainly over the last 10 years, there's been an increase in the number of older, let's say, let's be polite, say over 45s, going to the cinema, while the number of young people going to cinemas remained pretty much flat. And that's partly in response to a more diverse slate of films. That's partly in, in response to a more diverse cinema experience. So if you look at companies like Curzon and Everyman and some of the other inverted commas boutique companies, they're offering an experience which people like us probably like more than a big banging multiplex experience. Jeff, are you boutique or banging multiplex? I, I do a bit of both. both. I, I do a bit of both, actually. The box office stuff you were saying about No Time to Die and Spider-Man... How much of that is down to fewer films coming out of Hollywood? This trickle-down effect of production kind of grinding to a halt during the pandemic. So I think in any year a Bond film is a big film. You know, Spectre and Sky 4 are in the top five and now No Time to Die is in the top five as well. But I think, I think you're right that, you know, No Time to Die out in October of last year was the first big, big film released post-lockdown, and that undoubtedly was the, the, the kind of hinge point for many people of returning. But I think actually where we are, we're, we're in a, you know, not that any of us would have chosen it, but we're in a good place because we've essentially got, you know, kind of two years of films kind of circling, waiting to land in cinema. So there's more than enough content. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about... I don't know if it's a slightly rose-tinted cinema paradiso view of the importance of cinemas in smaller communities. So, you know, you asked at the outset, Ed, what I did, and, and, and part of what we do is we try to remind government and policymakers at all levels, be it national level or, or be it at the local or the regional level, that yes, cinemas are places where people go to watch films and that's their, their primary purpose. But they're also incredibly important local community, cultural Definitely. and social resources. What we've seen in over the last 10 or 20 years is the removal of youth clubs, many fewer Definitely. libraries. So, so cinemas are the kind of neutral community space. People of all ages and all backgrounds go to them. They may not necessarily mix entirely, but at least they're sharing the same space. So certainly if you look at retail developments, quite often they will seek out an operator of a cinema to, to be an anchor tenant because they drive footfall and they drive retail. But we have, over the last, certainly in the five years pre-COVID, and we're still seeing it, we have a large number of cinemas which are kind of bottom-up community ventures. A community comes together and decides the thing which our community is lacking is a cinema. And they'll find a way of, you know, through crowdfunding or whatever, of bringing that together. So I can look at places like Ilkley and Weatherby in Yorkshire and other places that where, where there either there was a slightly unloved cinema, which has now been taken to the heart of the community, or there wasn't a cinema, and the community have come together and they've, they've found the wherewithal and, to build and operate a cinema. And Phil, I have a sort of, reason for asking this but there's basically an old cinema in my constituency the cinema the infrastructure cinema is still there but it, it became a fireplace shop and then other things and it's now it's actually been closed for a number of years i mean what's the funding like for communities that want to start their own cinema refurbish the cinema? ed is asking if he fancied a a midlife career change this has been a long-running and so far unsuccessful campaign on my part so, so what you tend to find is, this will not be a great surprise to you, some local authorities are more progressive and enlightened than others. So, so some are willing to go the extra yard and find either funding or find people who have funding to do that. But I think once the kernel level idea is realised and, and people understand what a cinema can bring to a community, then many times more often than not, these things come to fruition and the cinema is built and operated. So certainly we do all we can. If communities come to us or groups of people come to us or developers come to us even with, with a thought on a cinema, we either give them the expertise, the knowledge we have, which gets to a certain point, but we then put them in touch with other people, like-minded people, or people who've been on that journey as well. Because we're still, you know, compared to certainly some other European territories, we're still comparatively underscreened in terms of cinemas you know we have 800 900 cinemas in the uk and what you've seen over the last five or six years in particular is cinemas growing up in areas where 
either there hasn't been a cinema for 20 or 30 years, or where a cinema has grown up because this new cinema is offering something different, either in terms of programming or experience. How would that AR900 compare to sort of 20, 30, 40 years ago? Probably in the 50s or 60s, there were probably two and a half thousand uh, right. cinemas, but they tended to be either single screen or, or twin screen. Yeah. They tended to be horribly underinvested. The phrase the flea pit cinema, you know, wasn't entirely yeah. a misnomer, to be perfectly honest. And then what happened in the mid 80s, and they, they have their detractors, but in terms of the economics of running cinema, the multiplex arrived. And the multiplex allows you, amongst other things, to show a much broader range of films to a much broader audience. And the majority of that 800, 900 cinemas are multiplexes, but there are still three or 400 single site, often single screen cinemas in towns and villages across the UK who are all things to all people in terms of the local community. I know you mentioned a couple in passing, but this puts you on the spot a little bit. Do you have a favourite example of a, a, a small cinema that came out of a grassroots campaign? So I, mean, I mentioned the Ilkley Cinema, and we're a membership organisation, so we love all of our children equally. But yeah. I'll pick on that one. I mean, no, so the Ilkley Cinema was basically, Il- Ilkley's are fairly well-to-do, but, but certainly because it's in the Dale, slightly isolated from everything around it. And two local businessmen just decided the place needed a cinema, and they would be the first to admit it, with, with no expertise or knowledge of the sector, basically dived in, found an old carpet shop, and found the investment by, I'm sure they won't mind me saying this, by mortgaging their houses, that started off as a, as a two-screen cinema. It's open, been open now for six or seven years. It's been so successful. It's now a three-screen cinema. And they've, they've recently acquired another cinema in a, a town not a million miles away. You've re-inspired me. I'm going to get their details from you. I'm going to go and talk to them. He's going to remortgage his house. And also, Jeff, here's my pitch to you. We'll have a professional shusha there. We'll have the sound piped into the toilets. Maybe not the soup. We'll, we'll take the soup under under advisement. You alluded to a, a, a curry debate, Phil. Where's that up to? As I said, I've been in the job for a decade or more. And, and when I came in, there was a fairly hard line amongst most cinemas not to allow customers to bring their own food and drink in, because that's primarily where cinemas make their money. And I think over a period of time, it was generally decided that stopping people coming in from the, with their own food and drink wasn't a good look particularly in times of, you know, kind of economic hardship. So there is a general understanding that as long as, peop- long as people don't flaunt it, they're allowed to. But there is a line, and, and smelly food is the line, essentially. <laughs> so, you know, if someone goes to the local, you know, kind of takeaway, brings in a prawn boona, I think that's where the line is drawn. Nothing beats a good cinema experience. And I think I, I'm just very struck with my family that we started to go back to the cinema and... It just is a completely different experience than streaming at home. Streaming at home is fine, but it's just not the same. It's probably one of the few remaining experiences where you gather with a group of other, hopefully like-minded people and enjoy a communal experience. Streaming is a very linear experience. And while there are perhaps benefits of being able to turn something off and go off and make a coffee or whatever. No, well, that's the problem. Exactly. Whereas cinema is a much more immersive experience. Totally. Well, look, Phil Clapp, it's been great to talk to you. I'm going to come knocking on your door about the cinema for my constituency. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Good to speak to you guys. Take care. We're going to talk now to the man who bought one of the UK's oldest cinemas, the Electric Cinema in Birmingham, during the pandemic and and reopened it early this year. Kevin Markwick, live from your projection room. Hello. Yeah. Hello. How are you? I'm well. It's quite exciting getting to see inside a projection room. (laughs) You're used to it. You've grown up with it. You've grown up in cinemas. but Yeah, grown up with it. Your dad ran a cinema, which you now run yourself uh, very successfully in, in Sussex. So what leads you to take on a project like this at a time when your industry has been hit so hard? A very uncertain time. Well, uh, I was approached at a film festival last summer and asked if I was interested in taking it. So I came up and had a look and it was looking a bit sorry for itself. And it just looked to me like something that we could do. It's because we've already got a heritage building down in Sussex. So we kind of understand, you know, what's required. And I was never actually, I mean, it's easy to say this now with hindsight, but I was never actually really worried that cinema wouldn't come back. I mean, that does sound like 2020 hindsight, I know, but it never really occurred to me that we were finished. And actually, there's nothing else I could do. So I had to had to make it work. And tell us a little bit about the history of the electric in Birmingham and what was the story? Well, it's been here, uh, I think it's 1908 it was built. 
it's had a lot of different iterations, had a lot of different names. It's a bit like my, I've had this hammer a hundred years and it's had four new heads and three new handles. It's been kind of uh, gutted from the inside out quite a lot, but it still has a full line all the way back from the beginning of cinema. But it's been a number of things. It's been a news cinema. It's been a cartoon cinema. It's been a second run cinema. Uh, it's been a porn cinema and then it was revived by the previous owner about 17 years ago so it's had a long and varied history would be the potted version have you found much evidence of that as you've been preparing to reopen yes we have actually we're working with one or two of the local history people and they've been in and had a look around at all the bonkers stuff that's hiding in the basement you know old posters and uh, wall-mounted uh, weird stuff and actually a basement full of British softcore pornography from the 1970s which is being catalogued if such a thing needs to be catalogued I don't know but it's all you know all part of British cinema I suppose we've also got an original uh, news camera from the 1930s which is quite interesting on display which is going to go into a museum people that owned it made their own newsreels and presumably it was local news because the news was a really important part of cinema particularly through the 30s and 40s and during the war, you know, that was the only place you could see any news was at the cinema. When you imagine, what, by 1946, over a thousand million people a a year went to the cinema. Can you imagine? I'd be doing this from my hot tub in Vegas if if a thousand million people went to the (laughs) cinema every year. You know, it, uh, it was a completely different thing. I like the idea of having this line all the way through cinema history which is what we've also got in Uckfield. It's a very important part of our of our culture and our history. Talk to us about the Uckfield cinema, Kevin. Well, that was built in 1916. Actually, Uckfield's only a tiny town in East Sussex, but it had a cinema before that in one of the village halls. And um, that was owned by the local magistrate. And he uh, refused to give the brand new cinema in the high street a license. I couldn't imagine that kind of political corruption happening today. I don't know about you, but it took four years for it to open, actually. And it was used as a garrison theatre for the troops right in the middle of the first war. Not being able to show films, they uh, used it as a garrison theatre for the troops stationed on their way to France. And uh, eventually in 1920, started showing films and hasn't stopped my dad took over. He, he was a projectionist, actually. He loved cinema. He started in 1946 in a cinema in Eastbourne and always wanted his own cinema. And Uckfield came up. This was in 1964 when I was uh, just barely two years old. And uh, we've been there ever since and we've improved it and looked after it and loved it. And it's now a very successful cinema. And what's your biggest challenge, Kevin, running these two cinemas, would you say? You have to keep one eye on the streaming thing. One or two of the distributors are still running to streaming before a film has done its natural lifespan, I think. But that doesn't seem to affect audiences too much. The biggest challenge I would suggest would be just making sure that you're in touch with your audience. You know, it's an old cliche, but if you build it, they will come. If you're skilled enough at programming, providing you listen to them, what they want, what they don't want, there's also one of the things, it might not be everyone's cup of tea right now, but food and beverage is a big thing for cinema. One of my old man's favourite sayings was, cinema was always huge in the 30s and 40s because it was nicer than your house. It was nicer than people's homes. You could go in, it was warm, it was comfortable. And actually, to some degree, the theory still applies. If we can make it a nicer, I don't mean nicer than your actual house, but the, the, the experience of watching a film is nicer than the one in your house, then I think cinema will survive. In one of our screens in Upfield, we put in these electric reclinery, you know, seats with a table and we serve food to your seat that you've ordered and all this kind of thing. And people absolutely love it. It, it, make, it differentiates. It makes the cinema a um, special night out, which is the direction we have to go. Now, if you're a diehard movie fan, maybe the idea of people sitting there chomping through nachos is a bit of an anathema, but... We have to do what we can to survive. And we make the experience as lovely as we possibly can. That's what cinemas have to do, I think. What's your top selling food or beverage, Kevin? It's it's nachos. Popcorn. <laughs> uh, no, no, we don't sell an enormous amount of popcorn. We're not a popcorn-y type of place. Lots of wine, lots and lots of Prosecco. And we try to um, sex up the hot dog a bit. Uh, we call that the Abe Froman, which if you're a movie fan, you'll understand it's actually a reference to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. (laughs) Yes, it's the Sausage King of Chicago. Absolutely. (laughs) There'll be people who are listening to this, Kevin, who think, oh, well, I love a cinema in my area. We don't have one or we used to have one. What's your advice to them? 
Um, I mean, it can be done. You can do it on a community basis. Try and talk to an operator, an existing operator, because we're always on the lookout for interesting projects. The ICO, the Independent Cinema Office, they have a big document on how to open a cinema, you know, like a Simpsons leaflet. So you want to open a cinema? And it's, uh, which has actually got lots of really good advice in it. But I would say you've got to really want to do it and you've got to be really passionate about it. But maybe getting somebody experienced on board would be the thing I would suggest. But it can be done. You probably notice that cinemas are popping up in the oddest kind of buildings, you know, old post offices, old office buildings and things like this. With modern digital technology, you can build a cinema virtually anywhere, actually, or virtually. It's very difficult for me sometimes because I literally grew up in a cinema. It's like my natural habitat. You know, I'm like Yogi Bear in Jellystone Park. How many films a week did you used to watch as a kid then? One or two. And I was very lucky. I got to see Taxi Driver and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Network and and all those films in a cinema when I was about 15 or 16. And my kids are the same because I've got four kids and Katie, my daughter, my eldest, she's up here running the electric. She's moved lock, stock and barrel. Wow. So we're going to try to keep that intimate family feel. As independents, we can always respond very quickly to what people want or don't want unlike, you know, some of the larger chains. Brilliant. Kevin Markwick from The Electric in Birmingham. Thank you very much for talking to us. No problem. Thanks, Kevin. Absolute pressure. So I'm delighted to say, I'm awestruck to say that we are joined by actor and director Fiona Shaw, who many of you will know as Carolyn in Killing Eve, but she's had many other brilliant roles Fiona, thank you so much for joining us. We, the audience, are in the last series of Killing Eve, um, but obviously you've finished filming it. Carolyn is such a brilliant character and brilliantly played by you. Are you sort of going to miss it? Are you going to get Killing Eve sort of withdrawal symptoms? Yes, I I probably will. I mean, she's so not like me. I so enjoy playing it. Everything that I do normally is really how not to be in life because Karen really knows how to be, which is largely not to, not to say very much. And when you do say something, really pause before you say it. And listening to you, our audience will think, oh, she doesn't sound like Carolyn. Uh, that, that is a thing actors do, actually. That, that this place called RADA, they teach them these types of skills, Ed. How difficult is it to be in that voice? Or is it just, is that, is that really kind of easy? I have lived in the in the Great Islands of Britain for 45 years. So it's not difficult to just fit into that. Ed, that's the job. All right, okay, okay. Actors, that's what they do. Okay. Yeah. I think what you're really referring to is that it's, I think it's not just, it's not an accent. It's a, it's a, it's a way of thinking. And it's yeah. very associated with a way of being English in a certain kind of way. It's a sort of formality, uh, precision, and ironic and dry. And it's very English. Now, there's some rumours of a spin-off. There is. I hear them all the time. And and people do talk to me about them. So I don't know. At the moment, I'm busy doing something else. And I have a few other things coming up. But uh, maybe if, if it lingers, I, I certainly would think about it because I enjoy her. I, I would miss, I miss her so much already. What would she be in the spin-off, do you think? Who knows? Well, we love Carolyn. Good, good. <laughs> Keep watching. Roll on that spin-off. Um, we we have been focusing specifically on cinema, and I just wondered, like growing up in Cork, did you have a local cinema that you would go to? And can can you remember the first film that you saw there? Well, I was brought up in the Middle Ages, you know, and um, we didn't have much cinema. Two two reasons: one, my father was very strict and didn't allow us go to things very much. But wow. he, he also probably wasn't wrong because there wasn't that much to go to. Censorship was huge. But I do remember seeing Bergman films and things like that in my teens and thinking, what? (laughs) Um, But it wasn't the lifeblood. You know, in Ireland, really, the pub was the lifeblood because people would go and talk and tell stories. So it's really only since I came to live in London that I really understand this scale of, of cinematic and theatrical celebration. I think film, of course, has mutated brilliantly. And I think the pandemic actually has probably helped it. I went the other night to uh, Batman and it's three hours long. Now, people began to complain like mad in London that shows, you know, the, you know, the King Lear is three hours long. People don't mind at all now. The cinema is three hours long. And I think that's come from our patience levels 
shifting as audience members. What do you think about the long-term effects the pandemic is going to have? I mean, obviously the pandemic has had, you know, a whole range of hideous effects on so many people, but but it's also had a real effect on the arts. Do you think our cultural tastes will change? Mine has changed. I feel that I don't really want to be in an audience very easily. I went to the theatre recently and I was vaguely uncomfortable because the the point of an audience is they breathe as one. And at the moment, we're all, we're all trying to breathe separately. And when you breathe as one, the person on the stage, if they're exciting, their adrenaline, which starts their heart racing, weirdly communicates and starts the audience's heart racing. But if your heart is already slightly racing because of the fellow next to you who's coughing, or the man, then you, you're you're having a singular experience. You might be enjoying the play, but you're kind of aware that this person here is doing something else. That's really not what the theatre is there for. In the cinema, volume is much louder. The scale is bigger. The audience, the actors aren't present. But if the actors aren't good, there's a sound effect going to make you go, oh, whatever it is. Certainly in Batman, there's a lot of But the effect of the pandemic is that I will hesitate about what about going to the theatre. It'd have to be either for friends or an amazing event. You wonder whether there'll be an audience for a three-month run or a five-month run where there used to be, you know, an absolutely full house. And I don't really want to play to anything less. To play to a full house is, a, is itself the experience. You're holding a thousand people. And they've all wanted to come and they're all enthralled and they're silent or they're laughing. It is a huge high, both for the performer and I think for the audience who, who feel they're being gathered along with the experience. But I don't know if you can fill audiences for the next, I would still say two years. I, I, I don't think our memory is going to lose this quickly. So what do you think the implications of that are for your profession? Now, you're, you're insulated to a large extent because you have this screen acting as a string to your bow, but many of your friends, I'm, I'm guessing, haven't worked very much at all or they've played to socially distanced audiences sporadically over the last couple of years. Yes, and many of my opera friends are being cancelled all the time because too many opera singers get COVID and then the thing has to be cancelled. Now, that demoralises the contract, doesn't it, somewhere? Because you kind of say, coming Thursday, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, La Boheme, starring. <laughs> you kind of want it to happen. Um, and even when that won't be an issue, people will definitely be thrilled to go back to have that experience that they used to have. But I don't know if that many haven't changed some of their skills. And this obviously comes on top of sort of streaming and Netflix and all of that stuff. It's unbelievable. Ed, Ed and I often talk about Dallas and the thing about Dallas and TV most of our lives is it had to be that you could switch it on having missed a couple of weeks and understand what was going on. And now that's out the window with streaming. So in some ways, it's an exciting time, I'm guessing, to, to be an actor because you get to develop a character in over a much longer arc than you would in a play or TV series or a film. A little bit like being in the theatre. I must say, I do feel that the long form is, and it's negotiable because you have time to negotiate with writers. You can say, I, I really think, you know, not to say I think I should be jump run under a bus next week, but you do have the sense that something is developing in front of your eyes. And of course, it's all new writing. I mean, a lot of, this, a lot of very good theatre is the classic writing reinvented or reshaped or redone. It's a good thing for actors that they can be in series, but that's a very small uh, strata of actors. And like all professions, there tends to be a sort of group who tend to dominate that for a while. I'm sure it changes over. But um, the home thing means that people have something to talk about at home, but it means the home thing are not sharing whether they watch something on Netflix and it's the same as their neighbours watched or the people at work watched. And that used to be a great thing about watching Dallas. Presumably people could go to the office and say, did you see what happened to JR last night? And they're all watching separate things now. I mean, there's so much, but it does mean that the whole thing is developing. And I think that will have a phenomenal effect on the theatre because the theatre will have to change radically to become something that is not cinema or long form television. I think cinema is becoming opera. I, do, I, I mean, I can't believe the level of design. The Power of the Dog would have been seen as a very self-conscious film, I think, 
15 years ago. Now this heightened, heightened to a kind of poetical form. And that's really exciting. I sometimes wonder about like the allure of screen acting for somebody who who loves theatre. Now, as you've described, we're, we're at this strange moment in history. But you, before you were telling us about that moment that you're creating in harmony with an audience that happens in the theatre. Whereas with with screen acting, it it seems like you sit around, you work for a few minutes, you wait around, and then you're just hoping that somebody's going to glue it together in an order that makes sense. No, it's a very good question. I I think in the theatre, what does happen, and they've done all sorts of tests in it now, when, when, you know, when Hamlet says, now should I do it? Now he is praying. The audience are going, now should I do it? (laughs) They are not just looking at Hamlet, deciding whether to kill the guy or not, and having a think about it, they are Hamlet. The same part of their brain is alerted at the same time if it's a good Hamlet. If it's a boring Hamlet, you're already asleep. But if it's good, it's it's literally going much more directly than the sound of the voice and the effect of whether you think Hamlet should kill the guy that minute or not. It's incredibly direct. They think, I am Hamlet. I, now shall I do it? Now, I, I. And they they become, with the actor, the thing. They are actually being it. The Henry V or wherever they are, they are it at that second. Your control of that as an actor, you're relinquishing so much of that when you do screen acting because the camera has to be pointing in exactly the right place or it's a distraction. When they edit the the kind of beats and rhythm of it, that that's not up to you anymore. And it's not just that. It's that, you know, sometimes I really enjoy if I can make the camera crew laugh. But of course... When we do the setup too, because the sound was wrong, when you do it again, they're not going to laugh the second time or the third or the 24th time when the angle is this angle and you're still saying the same line. It is the most tedious. And that way it becomes a kind of Zen activity of trying to to hit it completely correctly. It's not a dead experience to do it. You you have to be very alive and miraculously the camera will catch whether it's flat or not. I mean, the camera does make up, up for a lot of things. A lot of very poor actors come off quite well on the camera because the edit can push the moment of choice. But it's very, very good if if uh, you can hold the air for that moment, even with a small group of 60 of you instead of 1,000 of you. Um, and the hair people are just looking at your hair. The costume people are just looking at your costume. They're not necessarily listening to you. The cameraman is doing that and the grips are moving the camera. They're all doing something. So it's 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 an amazingly unified thing. But the great fun in, the, in making series is uh, is playing with another actor, of course. And then you can start developing and saying, wouldn't it be good if I took a sip of tea there? Um, and that is good when, when it can happen. But then you're locked in. You have to then stick to that. That's That's what's hard. Given we've been talking about cinema, Fiona, we can't let you go without asking you for your all-time favourite cinematic experience? I mean, I can't. I can't say that because I think I change in time. You know, there was yeah. a time would have said, I don't know, James Joyce, The Dead, the movie of that was absolutely brilliant. But I, that's quite a, a sort of Celtic Twilight film, but it's a brilliant film. But recently I saw Parasite for the third time. I think it's an astonishing film. And it, it, it on many counts, I mean, not only is it genius in how it tells a story, it's Korean and Korea have... have put tons of money into their film industry, which just shows that government investment mm. in industry pays off the palm door. You know, never mm. had an Asian film one that before. So you can see that energy, focus, thought, beauty, excitement, and concentration can make marvelous things happen. So I, I'm I'm pretty well dazzled every year by some film or other. I think otherwise the ones that don't leave you, as I have to say, the sound of music is probably the best thing I've ever seen. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was being allowed go. How old was the oldest daughter in that film? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I cannot remember now. I just mean, you, those experiences you have when you're very young are so astonishing. You can't believe the scale, can you? The hills are alive. <gasps> but I don't know if that, I'm hoping my taste has improved. <laughs> Well, look, what a pleasure to talk to you. We're definitely promoting the Carolyn spin-off. <laughs> is, is there a petition we can sign? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Sally would be gentle at gentle <laughs> saying, make that spin-off happen. No, thank you both. 
parliamentary petition. Could you bring it up at Prime Minister's I will, question I'll time? Try. I'll have a think about yeah, it. Yeah, next Wednesday. We'll... I'll have a think. <laughs> I'll be here keeping my eyes on the television doing nothing else. <laughs> Thank you both very much. Fiona Shaw, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Ed. Well, that was an inspiring conversation, wasn't it? It was just great. It was this real celebration. Real celebration. No pun intended, but uh, Ed can spot him. If there's one there to exactly. be spotted, Ed, Ed can always find the dad joke. Exactly. To paraphrase Mark Twain, rumours of the death of cinema have been greatly exaggerated. And, you know, I know we're yeah. not out of the pandemic yet, and it's going to be a while before everyone's comfortable going back to a cinema, and the businesses have been hit but I don't think it's going anywhere. And I'm really interested as well, not just because of your ambitions, in the role they play in the communities, which I think could be important. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely. I'm thinking about the episode we did with, who is your French friend with the trendy glasses who we talked about town centres? Christophe. Yes. Christophe Igray. It made me think about how cinemas could be part of that mix of things that help with social cohesion as the nature of town centres change. I completely agree with you. And I think, I thought Kevin sort of conjured up particularly well the sort of magic of it, you know. Mm. It was like a real-life cinema paradiso. I know, I know. And it is about community and spaces for people and places for people to come and meet and mix and so on. And there is something about digital technology, which is the thing that is going to make it a lot easier and that's there are the we haven't got into it in this episode pop up cinemas and all of that and showing things in you know village halls community halls and so on so you know I think it was it was said very well by Phil that it is a social experience mm. and I do think it's a different experience the one that Fiona was describing where performers on a stage and an audience are in a moment and it's contingent on there being a full house that doesn't apply as much to cinema I don't think. And it is odd, isn't it? Because it's like there is something almost surprising about it because you go to a place with lots of people you don't know to all watch the same thing when you could be doing it at home. But there's something about the experience of being out of your home, going to a place with others, which which makes it different. We've never been to the cinema together, have we? No, I think you would find the amount of times I need a lavatory break a, a little hard to take. I might be get a bit embarrassed by your shushing. You might have to shush me. Yeah, I suspect so. I think despite your protestations, I can imagine you doing a lot of, yeah. so who's he then? Is he the guy we yeah. saw before, the one with the thing? You don't think we're a sort of perfect cinema couple? Let's, let's go on a date and see how it goes. We'll report back. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, as ever, we would love to hear from you. I'll tell you what would be um, great to hear about. Me. Well, I mean, I know that's what you yeah, propose every week. Can we do me as this week's episode? Can I be the, the reason to be cheerful? But I was thinking more specifically, any examples of... Um, communities who felt that they needed a cinema and they've banded together and made it happen. Definitely. Anything on that or just your thoughts generally on... Um, life? Life or your, your appetite for getting Food? back and, and engaging <laughs> in culture. Oh, sorry. How come you've ended up as the irreverent one? I don't know. It's a role reversal. Um, also, we love hearing from people, ideas for future episodes, our... Uh... Oeuvre? What is oeuvre? Is it like a louvre but without the L? No. And uh, no, an oeuvre is is it's your canon, isn't it? Exactly. You know, exactly. That's... A body of work. Is that what it is? I think so. Substantial body of work constituting the life work of a writer, an artist, or a composer. I'd be surprised if anybody else thinks of our podcast <laughs> back catalogue as an oeuvre. <laughs> There's some kind of delusion of grandeur. Okay, fair enough. Please. Anyway, this comes from Paul Varela, who says, I've just been listening to today's podcast about energy yeah. storage. Part of our oeuvre, yeah. It is, yeah, yeah. A recent addition to our oeuvre. Yeah. <laughs> we had solar panels installed when we moved into our new build four years ago, and between the panels and battery storage, it cost just under 10K, which seemed like a lot but we've never had an electric bill. In fact, we are currently making around £26 a week, wow. as well as getting all our electric for free. And in August last year, £300 was sent to us as our electric account was so far in credit. So that's part one of Paul's message. I mean, part two is much, almost as important. Yes, this is. I think that this is perhaps going to capture your attention a bit more. It says, 
Also, can you let Ed know that as a scuba diving instructor, I tend to remove hoods when the water is uh, 10 Celsius and gloves come off at 13 Celsius. Interesting, isn't it? Mm. Well, I was in this morning and it was 8.7. I felt I needed all of my equipment. Are you taking that little thermometer with you? No, I haven't really used it. You were talking last week about how you love strangers striking up conversations with you. I think that that would be another talking point. Yeah, I'm not so sure. You could lure people in with your little thermometer. Yeah, anyway, but that's good advice from Paul. about. I thought Paul might be offering to be my scuba diver instructor. But Do you have much interest in scuba diving? I'd be a bit claustrophobic, but I would quite like to do it. Maybe um, Paul could accompany you to the ponds and you could see what's on the uh what's on the bed there i'm not so sure about that actually maybe some discarded boots yeah or like an old bicycle or something do you think that's really gone out of fashion hasn't it fishermen casting their lines and then pulling up an old boot yeah i, I wouldn't i don't think i would like to look too far beneath best not to think about it I kind of slightly feel that should we move on? Yes. This is from Jonathan Drake. Dear Ed, dear Jeff, having recently listened to your episode on climate anxiety, this quote stood out to me from Cal Flynn's excellent and ultimately optimistic Islands of Abandonment. And this is how it goes. But I cannot accept their conclusions. To do so is to abandon hope, to accept the inevitability of a fallen world, a ruinous future. And yet everywhere I have looked, everywhere I have been, places bent and broken, despoiled and desolate, polluted and poisoned, I have found new life springing from the wreckage of the old. Life all the stranger and more valuable for its resilience. Can I just say that was beautifully read? Can I just say I agree with you? They should ask you on Jack and Nori. Does it still exist, Jack and Nori? Well, they do the CBeebies bedtime story. I really like Jack and Nori. Anyway, uh, Jonathan says, if you haven't read the book yet, I would strongly recommend it as required reading around the climate anxiety topic. Thanks for the tip off. Jonathan. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro and it is spring. At the end of this week, of course, uh, the clocks will be springing forwards. I do find myself as I get older getting more and more um... grey. Yeah, but but wrinkly, but but sort of forgetful, obset- obsessed about sort of death. <laughs> You're doing to me what I did to you <laughs> about the light, and I, and I can see how annoying it is uh, about it being light. And that must make a big difference. I do have news to report, by the way, which could easily have been my reason to be cheerful, which is Dylan the dog, who we dog sat before the pandemic, he's coming for a weekend quite soon. You're taking things to the next level. An overnight. He's so lovely, Dylan the dog. I know he's so calming and therapeutic. There's a very cute picture of him lying on my lap asleep. Dylan is a great advert for dogs. While you're telling me this, I'm desperately trying to remember the name of your imaginary dog. Chutney. Chutney, of course. I knew it was a foodstuff. Um, I, I want to know if you've, you know, you're going to keep them separate. Uh, Chutney's fine. He's, um, he's, he's, he's chill about Dylan. Well, it'd, be, it'd be nice for him to have a bit of canine company too. Well, that is true. Yeah. Well, should we thank our guests? We should. I'd like to thank Phil Clapp, Kevin Markwick, and the uh, brilliant Fiona Shaw. Emma Caution produces all the audio for our podcast. Thank you to Emma. Joe Kenyon from Goldfish has provided all the backup and research. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. Our idents were made by James Deacon. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been complaining to the usher. He's been a professional shusher. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you.